Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Weekly Haftorah. Um, for ladies that are outside of Israel, you guys are in Parsha Shlach this week. So go ahead and listen to the recording that I sent out last week. And this week's recording uh, will be for Parsha's Korach, which is for everybody in Israel. And then ladies outside of Israel, listen to this next week. So this week is Parsha's Korach, which means we're in Sefer but Midbar, the Book of Numbers, Parakim Tes Zion through Yod Ches, so chapters 16 through 18. So let's think about the context of the past few weeks. Last week in Parsha Shlach, we saw the catastrophe of the spies and their negative report of Eretz Yisrael has just happened. The people find out that they won't be able to enter the land of Israel. And so there's a lot of discontent going on right now. Let's say you're someone who perhaps wants to provoke a rebellion. This would be the perfect time to do exactly that. So along comes Korach. Korach is the first cousin of Moshe and Aaron. He is extremely wealthy and charismatic, and he uses these traits to his advantage to stir up a rebellion against Moshe and Aaron. He says that basically they brought B'nai Israel out into the desert to die. They had raised themselves up and appointed themselves as powerful over the people. And most importantly, a third point, which is that he's accusing Moshe and Aaron of hoarding all of the power to themselves. So the crux of the argument of Korach is actually summed up really well by a medrash in Bamidbar Rabbah, which explains where Korach got this idea from. So last week we ended off Parsha Shlach with the mitzvah of tzitzis, and this probably seemed kind of out of place in the midst of all of this chaos that's going on with the Maraglim and between with Korach, but the rabbis say, no, this is really actually connected. So after we get the mitzvah of tzitzis, Korach goes to Moshe Rabbeinu and asks him two halacha shailas. He asks, if a garment is made entirely of blue threads, is it exempt from techelis? So techelis is basically this requirement that in tzitzis you have a blue thread. Um, and he also asks that if, if a house is full of sifrei Torah, does it still need to have a mezuzah hung on the doorpost? And Moshe's answer to both of these questions was, of course, yes, you still have to have techelis on a blue garment, and you still have to have a mezuzah on the house full of sifrei Torah. Korach answers, that's absolutely ridiculous. How can't something that's entirely holy fulfill these mitzvah obligations without something additional? And that is the logic that he applies to Kal Yisrael as a whole. He says, we all stood at Sinai. We're all holy. So why do we need you, Moshe and Aaron, to speak to God for us and to handle all these very holy tasks? Why do we need you if we're all holy? That's, that's Korach's sort of basis for this rebellion. So we see there's this basic notion that Korach felt he didn't need someone else set aside as holy by God to go talk to God for him. So Korach convinces 250 of the Nisim, so these are like the most high-ranking men in Bnei Yisrael, he convinces them of this as well. And it's important to note that these, these Nisim certainly were not fools. In fact, they're some of the most learned and well-respected people in all the community, which really lends itself to how convincing Korach was. So Moshe proposes that upon hearing this. The following day, all of the people that are involved in this dispute would go test who God really wanted to be the leaders. He says, we'll all go to the Mishkan, we'll all offer up Ketores, so the incense offering, and we'll see who's Hashem wants to accept. Then we'll know that they're the real 
the real leader. We'll just let God decide. So that night, Moshe and Korach spent their nights very differently. Moshe goes and davens, he begs Hashem, don't accept the offerings of Korach and his group, because if you do accept those offerings, they'll die. Remember that Korach and his group, these are for purposes of the Mishkan, these are just like anybody else in Bnei Israel. If you're not a Kohen, if you're not trained in how to do this very complicated ritual of the Ketoras, you're probably going to die in the process. We saw that by Nadav and Abihu. So Moshe's davening Hashem, like, please don't let them get hurt. Don't let them die. Meanwhile, Korach is busy stirring the pot. He's gathering up the entire community. He says, guys, come watch. You know, we're, we're going we're gonna to overthrow the leadership. Come see it tomorrow. So God sees what's going on. He basically wants to destroy the entire community. But Moshe and Aaron Davin and the schus of their tefillahs, Hashem only destroys Korach and his group of 250. The text describes that sort of a hole opens up in the earth and swallows them and everything that belongs to them. And the earth then closed back over them. So there's no sign that they ever even existed really. Um, at this point, we're in the fourth Aliyah. Hashem sends a plague throughout the nation. Thousands of people die before Aaron goes out. He does tshuva for the sin, after which the plague stops, the dying stops. Moshe then instructs Elazar the Kohen to take the tools that Korach and his group used to you know, go up to try to, to give their offerings. He, he would take them and flatten them into a sheet that would be placed on top of the Mizbeach in the Mishkan. And that would sort of serve as a reminder that Aaron is the true heir to the priesthood, and nobody who's not a Kohen should be approaching this Mizbeach to try to give any sort of sacrifice. So after the story of Korach ends, there's a few other points in this Parsha which happens, which I'll mention, but I'm not going to go really into them because they don't have so much to do with the Haftorah. So the next in the Parsha, we have the test of the staffs, and the end um, eventually further affirms Aaron Akohen's inheritance to the priesthood. And the text also goes through what the gifts of the priesthood would be, since, as we know, the priestly class, when the people do eventually enter the land of Israel, won't have an actual portion of land that belongs to them, so they need these gifts from the rest of the people to um, subsist off of. So that is a very quick rundown of the Parsha. We'll talk about the historical context for our Haftor now. Haftorah this week comes from Sefer Shmuel Aleph. And as always, we should note that Sefer Shmuel was actually divided into two books by non-Jewish sources. Uh, we kept that division sort of for ease of referencing the Psukim, but when we're learning, we should always look at Sefer Shmuel like one big long Sefer. So the actual Sefer was written by three Nevi'im, by Shmuel, by God, and by Nasan. Shmuel wrote the bulk of the Sefer, and God and Nasan came along after his death and sort of finished the pieces that happened after Shmuel dies. Shmuel Aleph is taking place at the turning point between the period of the judges and the kingship. The Sefer speaks about a 100 or so year period where Israel is transitioning from the period of the Shoftim. So from this sort of rapidly changing succession of leaders that we see um, through Sefer Shoftim, the beginning of Shmuel Aleph to the period of kingship. For reference, if this helps you guys, David comes into power around the Jewish year 2860 or the secular year 900 BCE, if that's easier to reference. But before David, we have to speak about the first king, or really, before that, even the idea that Israel would have a king at all. And that's what this week's Haftor is really about.
So this week's half Torah is from Perak Yod Aleph and Yod Base, but we first need to take a look at Perak Ches actually to get a grip on some context for this. So in Perak Ches of Shmuel, the Zakanim, so the, the the old members of the sort of halachic authority, they come to Shmuel and they basically say Shmuel Shmuel is the last shofate. So they came to Shmuel when he's still a shofate, and they say you're getting old. And your sons don't look so fit to take on this role, so we should probably appoint a king now. Um, Shmuel then goes to run this past God. He says, God, I don't really trust this. What are these people doing? And God says, no, no, you know, I, I, I agree with you, but, but this is what they do. We'll, we'll let them have a king. And, and that brings to our Haftorah with God sort of reluctantly agreeing to let B'nai Israel do this. So because this week's selection is definitely longer, I'm not going to be reading inside the Pesukim as much. Um, but as I said, we open in Perak Yod Aleph, Pasuk Yod Dalid. In these opening Pesukim, so the last few Pesukim of Perak Yod Aleph, um, the text is describing this celebration. There's feasting, there's sacrifices happening right after Shaul is um, anointed king over Israel. So the people are very happy, but Shmuel's not so sure. So Shmuel opens Perakid base with a testimony of sorts. He says publicly, I'm testifying right now before God in public that I didn't steal anything from you. I didn't extort you. I'm in no way forcing you guys to take this king upon yourselves. And people confirm, yes, this is something that we wanted. Shmuel, you're not, you're not responsible for pushing us to do this. Shmuel then in Pesukim Vav through Yud Beis, so 6 through 12 reviews all of, sort of historically, all of the kindnesses that God has done for Kal Yisrael. He reminds them God took you out of Egypt, God sustained you in the desert, God helped you through this sort of cyclical period of the Shoftim where again and again you sinned, you forgot about him, and then he accepted your tshuva. In Pesuk Yud Gimel through Tes Vav, so 13 through 15, Shmuel basically, you know, says in what in my opinion is sort of the thesis statement of the Haftorah. He says, you guys begged me for a king and God is letting you have one. But this doesn't mean that you get off scot-free for all the mistakes that you're inevitably about to make. Even though you're going to have a king, your accountability to God still remains. If you as individuals and as a community, if you sin, you'll bear the consequences. Conversely, if you follow the will of God, everything will be good. But, but note that there's still going to be accountability here despite this, this king being in place. So to follow this, to follow this sort of speech, Shmuel actually is able to summon a miracle from Hashem um, as what I think of as kind of an endorsement of what he's just said. Hashem brings a huge thunderstorm, which for the context of this parak is a miracle because it's the middle of the summer. And, you know, in the United States, it, summer thunderstorms happen. It's totally normal. But in Eretz Yisrael, this is not normal at all. These, these big thunderstorms that roll through, they only come in the winter. So for this to happen in the middle of the summer is like, it, it scared people. It freaked them out because it's, it's not normal. So, so clearly Hashem is sending this, this weather as, as an endorsement of what Shmuel has said. Hashem is concurring that, just because you have a king doesn't mean that this system of accountability is going away. So the last part of the Haftorah is something of a reserved nechama that Shmuel offers the people of a, a comfort 
in a way. Shmuel says, even though I know that the people will eventually come to sin through this king figure, he says, I will still always daven for you. Tshuva is always an option. And because of that, you can be confident that, that Hashem will always accept your tshuva. And that's sort of where the Haftorah leaves us off. So in my opinion, one of the most interesting things about the, the pairing this week of the Parsha and the Haftorah is that we see very starkly sort of the character differences between Moshe Rabbeinu and Shmuel. You know, there, there are some instances where Moshe Rabbeinu seems to get frustrated with, with Kalal Yisrael, but really through and through, even in the middle of this Korach rebellion, Moshe is davening to Hashem, begging him, don't punish these people, protect them, like, you know, don't, don't wipe them out. And Shmuel, I think is safe to say, is, is a bit more cynical. He, he goes to God and he's like, God, I'm not really sure what these people are asking me. I'm not sure what's going on. I don't like this. Um, so it kind of just shows their, their different styles. I think Shmuel is, is a bit more reserved. So although normally I try to go a bit deeper, um, I feel like this week we can keep things a, a bit more simple and see this pairing as a little bit of a lesson in what the importance of Das Torah is. So at the end of the day, in both the Parsha and the Haftorah, Kal Yisrael fundamentally says, Shmuel, Moshe Rabbeinu, we know better than you. This is especially dangerous because Korach's group in the Parsha and B'nai Yisrael and Shmuel, they both were doing these rebellious things because they thought that they were getting closer to God through... Ironically, not through heeding his directions, but the goal is to get closer to God. Of course, you know, we can sit back and say, okay, if you want to get close to God, you know, do what he told you to do. Um, you know, you, you have Shmuel, you have Moshe Rabin, you have these amazing servants of God who are communicating directly with him. So if you want to get closer to God, why don't you just do what his servants are telling you to do? But, you know, it, it's, it's not, it's always easier to, to say it than to do it. So... Even in this time of Nevoah, even in this time of open miracles, Chal Yisrael is still doubting their halachic and their spiritual authorities, even though, again, they have the direct public endorsement of God, right? In Shmuel, we saw the summer rains. In Korach, we saw the opening of the earth to swallow this group that, that rebelled against the authorities of that time. So God is clearly endorsing, you know, you're sending us very clear signs. This is who I want you to listen to. So today, even though we don't have the luxury of Navua of prophecy, we don't have the luxury of having open miracles that show us exactly what God wants, we still have very clear guidelines of which rabbis we can trust and speak to about our questions. I'm not coming to say this, you know, to tell you, ask your rabbi if this food is kosher. I don't think I need to tell anybody in this group to, to do that. You don't need me for that. <laughs> I'm saying this because... I think that we as women kind of struggle with this in our own unique ways. Because by our nature, we talk a lot, we compare ourselves a lot. And we certainly do that with, you know, halakhic opinions as well. We might speak to our friend and hear that she got this hetter from her rabbi, or she got this opinion from her rabbi on what, what she should do. And we make one of two assumptions, either A, well, that's not fair. Why didn't I get that opinion? Why didn't I get that hetter? Or B oh, well, just because my friend got it, I certainly can do it too, which is not the case. Um, it can be really hard sometimes to trust the process, even when it seems unfair, and put aside what other people are doing and you know, do what we have specifically 
you know, received from our own authorities, whether it's more strict or more lenient than what someone else is doing. So we, like the people in the Parsha and in the Haftor, were presented with this sort of enduring challenge of trusting our rabbis, even though sometimes we have this little niggling Yetzirah in the back of our mind that, well, it's my relationship with God. Shouldn't, shouldn't I know better? Don't I know what I need? Um, on the end of the day, our, in our minds, we know the people who have the most Torah, they have the most clarity on this. And that's what our Parsha and Haftorah are charging us to do. Trusting Gas Torah, trusting the halachic process, that it's Ratzon Hashem, is key to our avoda, and that's what this week's readings are, are screaming at us to do. Without a clear authority structure within our communities, we can't have order. Without order, we can't have avoda. And that's really, to me, what these readings are calling on us to do. So, as always, um, reach out to me with questions, comments. Um, I'd love to hear what you guys thought. And have a wonderful Shabbos. I will see you next week.